All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Talking this morning about Christian maturity. Let's stand together as we give honor to God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 15. These are the words of God. And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are still not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds in the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will indicate it, because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> well, we, before we get into our text this morning, I want to remind you of a few things. Uh, first, from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4, verse 21, the Apostle Paul deals with the unfortunate divisions and schisms that had taken place in the Corinthian congregation. So he, that's a lot of writing about the same thing. He comes at it from different angles. Uh, but that's really the main point of that particular overall sermon, shall we say. Uh, remember, Paul arrived in the city after he visited Athens, and that was around 49 or 50 A.D., uh, it was there in Corinth where he met Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they were fellow tent makers like Paul. The apostle of the crucified Lord was a tent maker by trade. He must have learned that from his father. It may have been a family business, but he learned how to do it and seems to be quite proficient at it. And that was his trade. And, you know, he made money doing that on the side when he needed to. But being a church planting apostle was his calling. Like Bezalel, who was the chief craftsman for the tabernacle in Exodus 31, verse 2, Paul was a spirit-filled tent maker building churches. He was doing the same thing that Bezalel had done way back in Exodus, and that's going to become even more obvious in our text this morning. Moreover, after some initial victories with two Jewish 
synagogue leaders converting to Christ, the church had been successfully planted. And Paul was there, you might remember this, he was there 18 months in total. However, apparently just a few short years later, Chloe's people spilled the beans. The church was floundering and struggling and having problems. Apparently, there had been infighting regarding the message and the messengers, which Paul will continue to address here in chapter 3. So Paul wrote this letter probably from the city of Ephesus around 55 AD. He spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else, but he probably wrote this letter from there. And as we saw early on, you'll remember that this is actually his second letter to them. The first letter is lost. And so we call it 1 Corinthians because it's what survived, even though he references an earlier letter. So technically, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. So that's kind of an overview, just a reminder. The second thing I want to emphasize here is Paul's main focus was cultivating, once again, the foundation of Jesus Christ and his heinous but glorious crucifixion. That was the foundation for Paul of everything. The foundation of all of reality was Christ and him crucified. Over and over again, he reminds them of the centrality of the cross, itself the center of the gospel message, so that they might be brought back to the true wisdom and power of God that was contained therein. Uh, The cross is always at the center, and we are to grow up and mature, as Hebrews says, and Paul will tell us today, but that, you never walk away from that. That's your center. That's your anchor. That is the key point. Now, in this passage this morning, Paul's going to deal even more directly with the jealousy and strife that surrounded their favorite teachers. And the Corinthians had a, an obsession with things like knowledge and maturity and wisdom. And they were always sort of combating each other. Like, who's the more mature one and fighting? Nothing says you're immature like boasting in front of others that you're quite mature. You know, I am super humble. I just thought you guys should know. Now, they had defined all of those things in worldly terms. That's, they were thinking purely in worldly wisdom, worldly knowledge, worldly maturity. And he is quick to dismiss rhetorical persuasion as being the thing that converts sinners. And Paul does use rhetorical genius, but he does it to hold up a mirror of self-evaluation. And the fact is, immaturity during the infancy stage is to be expected. Um, No sane person is going to tell the one-year-old child, what's wrong with you? Why haven't you found a job yet? Right? We expect that at the infancy level. Okay? But immaturity is when it's unduly prolonged into adulthood, then we have a major problem. When you're a 35-year-old man and you can't hold a job. Now we have a problem. Now we have immaturity past what's expected. We expect it from a toddler. We do not expect it from grown men. Now let's look at our text here. The philosophers and the rhetoricians loved wisdom. Of course, that's what the word philosophy means. Philos, love, and then, of course, you know, you get the study of Sophia, wisdom. And they especially enjoyed talking about maturation. Apparently, that was a discussion about how you get to a place of maturity. Maybe you can quote Plato more than the other guy. I'm not sure. But the Corinthians, they apparently brought a charge against Paul, claiming that he didn't instruct them in a sufficient manner. 
yeah, you came preaching the gospel. That was great. And we believed. But man, there was more that you could have given us. And so there's this tension between Paul and the Corinthians because they, we assume from what we see, remember, we only see one side of the mail here. We don't know exactly what they said, so we have to piece it together. But they had a charge against Paul. And Paul starts in chapter 2 in verse 6. He brought up this mature concept. He just says, he says the word there. And then he writes, he comes back to it. And he writes to let them know that they are, in fact, the immature ones here. And they're not the wise ones that they think they are. And their infighting said more about them than it did about Paul and Apollos, which is often the case. I think it was Van Til who said, let an unbeliever uh, talk and sooner or later he'll hang himself. And that's usually that's how you deal with a fool or an immature person is you sort of just let them go because what they do says more about them than it does you. And we just have to make sure we don't take it personal. And that's where Paul deals with here is, look, you guys are doing all this nonsense. That's not me and Apollos. That's you guys. That's your deal. And in verse 1, he speaks to them. He, well, when he first came to Corinth, he spoke to them not as spiritual men, but as fleshly men, uh, babes in Christ. They were living on the basis of their, their corruptible or their fleshly, strictly human nature. And they were thinking of themselves as being on top of the social ladder. And Paul tells them, well, actually, you're at the very bottom. <laughs> so don't get too excited. He gave them originally milk to drink and not solid food for the simple fact that they weren't capable of taking it, taking it in. You know, when, when you have a newborn baby that's only a few weeks old, you, you don't start throwing sandwiches at them and say, here, good luck. And that's what they think they're capable. These immature Corinthians think they're capable of taking this five-course meal, but they're not. They're still infants they still need the milk and not the solid food so apparently verse 2 years later they are still not able still not able uh, if you have a, a man who has been in church his entire life and he's still incapable of either leading someone to christ or sharing the gospel with someone or perhaps even leading a bible study you may not be a great teacher. You may not even have to necessarily lead a Bible study, but you are incapable of basic things and you've been in the church 50 years. That's a problem. I've met people like that. I've seen that before. It's not good. And they're still not able. Now, spirituality means maturity. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. It means maturity, having the mind of Christ. It means exercising proper judgment over all things, he says in chapter 2, verse 15. And spirituality is measured by fruit. It's not measured by words. Spirituality is not measured by words. It's measured by fruit. I often think of that when Brother Ron and I are in Africa, and there are a lot of words that can be spoken, huh, in some of these churches. Well, where's the fruit? We can hoot and holler all day, and I, I love African worship, uh, it's not necessarily my style. I tend not to get all dancey. But there, there are a lot of words that can be spoken. Dancey is a word, by the way. <clears throat> if it isn't, it should be. <laughs> but
But you can say a lot of words, but where's the fruit? Spirituality is measured by fruit in your life. It's not measured by whether or not you know things. And apparently there were people among them who preferred the nursery. They were unwilling to grow up and advance past kindergarten. And they assumed a maturity that they didn't actually possess. And the origin of their thinking was worldly. It was based on human nature. It was based on human wisdom, fallen sinful wisdom, rather than God's revelation. And verse 3, he says it plainly, for you are still fleshly. Highly offensive. He doesn't, he doesn't pull back here. But you are still fleshly. Rehearse all the doctrine you want. The proof of immaturity stems from, verse 3, jealousy, note those two words, and strife. Jealousy and strife. Jealousy can run rampant in a church. <clears throat> if we do not stay grounded, we can be easily, we can easily give ourselves to covetousness. We can be jealous for other people, what they have going on or, or what have you especially in a church like Corinth, where there's a wide array of social, economic type factors. But the wisdom of God, something they felt wasn't as crucial to their development, they, they wanted to go beyond what was written, which he's going to mention that in chapter 4, verse 6. This wisdom had not yet taken root in their infantile hearts and minds, and the proof of which is their bad fruit. What are they producing? Jealousy, strife. If you're constantly producing jealousy and strife, you have to ask the question, is it really them or is it me? And a mature person is going to self-evaluate and then go from there. Carnality, that's the old King James here, carnality, fleshly, doesn't necessarily mean that one is not a Christian per se, but it does mean that a person is worldly or fleshly or becoming becoming more and more like the surrounding culture and bearing fruit in tandem with this unspiritual thinking. If you were to ask me what my condemnation of modern evangelicalism would be, it's that. It's flesh, fleshliness, meaning I'm not necessarily saying they're all not Christians because Paul has a category here for people who are Christians who are just fleshly. But I am saying that they look more and more like the world around them. Their walking, he says in verse 3, was like mere men. It's not a mature walk in the deep things of God with Christ. If you can't produce the fruit of love, are you, are you spiritual? No, Paul says. You're, you're not. You're fleshly. Either carry the name of Christ or stop pretending. Fleshly people are typically divisive people. They are people of the old age, the non-Christian pattern of sin, indulgence, and selfishness. They are constantly producing jealousy and strife. They're thinking only in terms of humanity and not things of godliness. So instead of carrying the name of Christ, the Corinthians were quite literally going around saying to each other, verse 4, I am of Paul. <laughs> I am of Apollos. Imagine going around saying that. They did. He even says, are you not mere men? I'll tell you, mortality usually helps with claims of superiority. Mortality will almost always help deal with the claims of superiority. Paul essentially says here, wake up and grow up. Your fighting is detestable. You're spoiled babies and brats. 
You act as though you did not receive the Spirit of God. You act as though you are the mature ones when in fact you're still a suckling. That's what he's saying here. Their own prideful elitist language is used against them, and rightfully so. This, Paul is a, a master of presuppositionalism. He's a master of pushing the antithesis. He takes all the words that they love, and he says, actually, it's this, and then he throws it back at them. It's brilliant. So the problem wasn't that they were infants at the beginning. It's that they were still infants years later. Self-absorption, remember, love doesn't insist on its own way. Self-absorption is a church killer that prevents people from graduating. When we are absorbed with ourselves, and that's it, we will immediately wreak havoc in a community. Speaking of Paul and Apollos, notice that Paul here in verse 5 says, what are they? That's not a mistranslation. What are they? He doesn't say who. He removes the human element altogether. That's humility. He doesn't say, well, who are they? No, no, no. What are they? He takes it a step further. See, immature Christians consider themselves as who instead of what? Who instead of what? Jockeying for, for position. Who is that guy over there? He looks really important. Who is he? Then you can say, what is he? He's just a man. He's just a man. See, they're always jockeying for positions. What they are matters more than who they are because God is the one who defines us. They are servants through whom the Corinthians believed. They are servants. They are not philosopher kings. They were instruments. Notice the word through there in verse 5. Through whom they were instruments. They were merely tools in service of God. God was and is the supreme patron who granted spiritual life to the Corinthians. Paul and Apollos both performed their duties, no more, no less. In fact, we find in verse 6 that Paul planted and Apollos watered. And both tenses indicate that it's a done deal. It's something that was already accomplished in the past. I did this, it's over. Apollos did this, it's over. However, God was causing the growth. The Greek language can be a tough, a tough thing to grasp, but there's a tense here that indicates ongoing action. What Paul and Apollos did was done, finished, dustbin of history. God continues to cause growth. In other words, again, their work was done, but God is always working. Verse 7, God's continuous action in building the church is the emphasis here, so much so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Notice he didn't say is anyone, <laughs> is anything. There was no sectarianism with Paul and Apollos. They weren't competing against each other. They never felt like that against each other. So why, were the, why was that going on in the Corinthian Ecclesia? The planter and the waterer are all the same. They're one. He's, that's what he says in verse 8. They're just, they're one. They're the same. Sure, they have to work together. Uh, you, you have to water the seed to get it to grow, right? We, we understand that. And you have to plant the seed to make the water make sense. Because if you're just watering dirt, you're not growing anything except maybe some future weeds. But Paul's point is, is God creates men, 
But he also creates Christians. Men don't do such things. God creates men. God creates Christians. Men do not create other Christians. That's the work of the Spirit. And each will receive their reward for their labors, not for their notoriety. You know, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, people knew you. People knew who you were. You were, you were quite impressive. Your rhetorical genius was phenomenal. I mean, God's, God's just lucky to have people like us, you know? It's really, really great for him. That's not at all what is happening here. We are nothing. We are no one. Paul and Apollos, they were God's fellow workers. Remember, Paul was the evangelist and the church planter. Apollos, we know from the book of Acts, was a, a master of the scriptures. He was a really good teacher. So Paul started the school. Apollos set the curriculum and he taught the curriculum. And they worked together to get a good crop of students. And in fact, the Corinthians, he says in verse 9, were God's field. They were God's field and they are God's building. He switches metaphors here. He's already talking about planting and watering. They're God's field. And now he's going to talk about the building metaphor. Because Paul always thinks in these chiasms. Paul essentially says, listen, <clears throat> the whole field belongs to God. It's totally his. It's God's field. Apollos and I are simply working together. At the end of the day, we're insignificant field workers. God is the one who really brings forth the harvest. He is who matters most. So in verses 10 through 15, the last part of our section today, Paul builds, that's a pun, and I definitely intend it, on the building metaphor. He talked about agriculture. That's a familiar metaphor, agriculture. And now he's going to explain architecture, another familiar metaphor. Uh, the Corinthians had, they were producing bronze, the most beautiful bronze in, in in the entire world at that time. They also had Greek structures and architecture and people loved what they produced. So Paul is clearly pulling from things that they would understand. Now, remember, we're playing for the same team here. We're using different gifts. We're laboring together as God's field and God's building. And here the grace of God was given to Paul and he was a wise master builder. He was a wise master builder. And that's a reference to the chief contractor who would come along and lay the foundation, and then he leaves the rest of the work to the subcontractors. That's the elders and deacons. Paul is a skilled day laborer in the field. He's very skilled at what he does, but he's also a wise teacher and instructor, and now he, he leaves the blueprints for the workers. He gives them the tools that they need, and all of that's God's wisdom in how he structures and orders his church. They are land and temple. By the way, this is an important point here because there's a lot of theories out there about the land of Israel today and a, re a future temple, which the New Testament does not speak of any other temple being rebuilt except for the church, the bride. He says they're God's land and temple, and he makes the land of Israel and the temple in Jerusalem completely defunct and irrelevant for the future work of the kingdom. And he says it right here. They are God's field. They are God's building. He's thinking land, temple, because he's a Jewish man. Now, these Corinthians, they might meet in different homes, but they are one community. <laughs> They're one household that belongs to God. But what sort of building is this? 
This passage is not about purgatory. Roman Catholics love to use this passage to speak of purgatory, and uh, which, <clears throat> you know, interesting thought, bad theology. And I will say, this isn't even a passage about all Christians facing final judgment. Because if you read it in context, it's really not about all Christians anyway. It's actually about ministers and teachers in the church. Each minister, he says in verse 10, must be careful how he builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Christ. He's talking about himself and Apollos, and not only their relationship with each other and their relationship with God, but their relationship to the church. You can't really lay on another foundation anyway, he says in verse 11, because Jesus is the only one. He's the only true cornerstone. Paul's thinking of Isaiah 28 here. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. He's the Holy of Holies. He is the one who builds the third and final temple, the people of God. So you have two options here. What materials can we build with? Well, one, we can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And that is an echo of Solomon's temple, which was a reflection of the Garden of Eden. Um, how are we doing on our Bible reading plan this year? We're already in that section of Exodus. All right. Um, just a quick checkup. Uh, but that section in Exodus is all about the priestly garments and the building of the temple. And, and that's because that is Eden coming back to life. So there's, there's echoes there. So you can build with that stuff. Or two, you can build with wood, hay, and straw, which is a metaphorical representation of the doctrines of fallen human wisdom. You can try, a, try to build a house on Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Plutarch and all the other Greeks. It's just going to crumble, though. On the day of judgment, however, fire will test the quality of the building. Verse 13. So if, if ministers and teachers of the church build in a biblical, truthful manner, what remains will be rewarded. <clears throat> Whatever is burned up, he suffers loss. He, he, obviously, him being saved through the fire. Now, builders are paid only when the work is acceptable to the patron. That's how you got paid back then. The work had to be acceptable. If the work is shoddy, he'll be fined accordingly. And he may have to pay the patron more, pay that money back, but also he's got to now fix the foundation. Because maybe he didn't lay the footers right, or maybe, you know, maybe the, maybe the siding wasn't placed correctly, and it's leaking, and now you've got to tear the wall off or something. Whatever the case, he'll be, Amos 4 says, a firebrand delivered that is snatched from a blaze. God's judgment is a fire that tests the stability of the house. And what happens after is his reward system. So Paul seems to be saying here, some leaders build with fireproof materials, which consists of Christ crucified and, and true spirituality, but others build with stubble and frailty, with <clears throat> philosophical fluff and fads and meanderings. But King Jesus is the building inspector, which means that we should take it very seriously. Now that's what he seems to be indicating here. How shall we then live? Well, <clears throat> in light of this passage, the questions that every Christian should ask go like this. And I'm going to give you a lot of them, so hang tight. 
is what I'm doing, just think of like, what, what are you doing with your life right now? Is what I'm doing as a member of this church something that enables people to worship God in spirit and truth? Is what I'm doing helping others to know and trust the living God more and more each day? Just think about what it is you're doing with your life. Is your life, are, are you living your life in such a way that the gospel is going forth in the world, that cultivation is happening within the people of God, those sorts of things. Do I exhibit a hospitable spirit or, or am I withholding kindness because of jealousy? Am, am I as a Christian contributing to the field or am I aiding or fighting against the growth? Am I, as a, as a Christian, contributing to the building, assisting with the work project, or am I withholding the love that I'm called to give? Does my presence here suggest that the church is God's project, or am I convinced that it is my project? Are my actions contributing to a healthy crop and a strong building, or am I sowing weeds and building with straw? Am I contributing to the unity of the church or am I contributing to its dissolution? Do I have too low a view of God's ministers or do I have too high a view? Because Paul goes after both here. Do I view my work as contributing to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of myself? Now, all of these questions are rooted in Paul's excoriating critique of the Corinthian church. And we would do well to assess ourselves along the same lines. All those questions I asked, I could probably pinpoint exactly where they're at. Every single one is pulled from this text. You see, because the church belongs to Jesus Christ, we are not free to sow discord, cause divisions, and form our own factions. Um, we are not free to remain immature babes in Christ. We are not free to try and build on our own volition and pride with our own creative philosophies. I, I tell you, it, it's sidebar, <laughs> permit me. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's like today, the church is so obsessed with trying to do everything but obey Jesus. Come, look how cool we are. This mega church out in the, I don't know where it's at, in the plains somewhere doing a Super Bowl-themed church service and the pastor's exegeting commercials from a Super Bowl. And they're having all these parties and stuff, and I just want to light the place on fire, but <laughs> talk about church repent. I, everything but what we're supposed to be doing. What are you building in those situations? I will say this. And this is language pulled from the prophets, but we are not free at all. The church is not free at all to treat the bride of Christ as though she were someone else's lover. The absence of maturity in a body becomes abundantly clear when people within the church become self-absorbed and are generally more concerned about themselves and what they think rather than being concerned with building a Christ-centered community where God's wisdom is present, and where spiritual discernment runs efficiently. The, this absence of maturity is also discernible 
uh, when the church becomes a stale nursery rather than a barracks preparing for war. I think a lot of people are comfortable in the church being a nursery where we can have our rocket, you know, rock ourselves to sleep with really cutesy lullabies and we don't want to teach anything too harsh that might wake them up from their sleepy nap time. See, having the mind of Christ means seeing the church as an organic institution made up of God-worshipping, spirit-filled people. Having the mind of man means seeing the church as an optional opportunity where strong personalities, self-interest, and self-aggrandizement or self-promotion can run free. Paul urges us to remember that if we will not recognize the absolute sovereignty of God and his purposes for the church of Jesus Christ, then we will see the people of God trampled underfoot. We will see the people of God trampled underfoot. We will see the world given over to sin and the church will become entirely impotent and we will have deserved it. Do you guys think Christians are being trampled underfoot today? (laughs) I think our, our greatest problem isn't the enemy. It's the fact that we resist the Holy Spirit. That's our greatest problem. As much as we loathe things like the wokeism and the Marxist socialism and you know, the, 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 the abhorrent policies that we see in place, those are terrible things, absolutely, but our greatest problem is we resist the Holy Spirit. See, to exchange this tremendous blessing of serving the Lord and building on Christ's work for pettiness and politics, that's a mark of an infantile faith. You see, sound doctrine is something that must be taught in the assembly of God. God's program for sanctification means that we will be able to look back on our lives and see that we have grown in tremendous ways, that we have matured more and more each year. We should be able to look back on those things. And if you can't see it, have someone else help you. What ways have I not grown? I tell you, spouses, you're really helpful in that arena for better, for worse. Honey, what's wrong with me? Well, let me tell you. Let's sit down. But in all seriousness, though, we should be able to look back. And if, you, if it's hard to see yourself. It's hard. Self-evaluation is a very difficult thing. So we might need help. But we need to be able to look back and see that we're not still in kindergarten anymore. Paul essentially says, utilize the best building materials, build on Christ's work. It's the only thing that'll last for eternity. So everything we're doing and thinking about needs to be centered on that. And and what he means is use the materials that God has given us. Don't settle for anything less than God's means for God's ends. But how exactly does Jesus intend to build his church? What sort of maturity is he after? I have three things for you. Very simple. For starters, he wants the church to reflect his thinking. What type of church is Christ after? He wants one that reflects his thinking. We have the mind of Christ, he says, which means our thinking should be patterned after the scriptures and not after the world. And many Christians today, it seems to me, are practically brain dead when it comes to the idols of the world. And I mean that in in an infantile, immature 
way. They, they have become quite comfortable in a world that stands in complete opposition to King Jesus. It's fine. No big deal. The worse it gets, the better it is anyway. See, it's, it's, it's not a world that is only somewhat opposed to Christ. We have a culture that is at war with Christ. I love how Aaron Wren, he wrote an article a while ago that became very popular. Positive world, neutral world, now we're a negative world. Christianity used to be an advantageous thing to have in our culture. And then it was kind of, eh, now it's, you're the enemy if you're a Christian. We've moved that way. And we can't be comfortable thinking that, well, it's fine. We don't have any other responsibilities. Let's just hunker down. We have a culture that is at war with Christ. And what should a Christian think about that? What should we be thinking about that? And being able to identify and respond to idols in, our, in the culture is absolutely what it means to follow Jesus. We need far more Gideons surreptitiously toppling the idol at night. More of that, please. <laughs> but if we will not have our thinking set straight, discerning all things in terms of Christian theistic thinking, then we will be stupefied at best, totally compromised at worst. And judging by how many ostensible Christians have embraced the woke mind virus, it shouldn't be surprising that we are reaping what we have sown. Biblical thinking today has become very, very unpopular. Very unpopular. <clears throat> Mature Christians are critical thinking Christians. They are informed by the revelation of God in Christ and in the scriptures. We are not anti-intellectuals. Our, our believing and our thinking go hand in hand, but we have to be patterned after him. Second thing, Jesus also wants the church to reflect his teaching. So being able to think is part of what it means to follow Christ, to have our minds renewed, pattern after the scriptures. But we also need to know what the scriptures say. We need to reflect his teaching. Your job as a Christian is to grow up into the faith. And one of the main ways this happens is by growing in your knowledge of biblical truth. I, I love, I've always loved this Psalm 119 as a kid. How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, you know, you got to do this and you get in the right school and you do that. <laughs> no, it's by guarding your heart according to the word of God, storing up that word, storing it up in your heart so that you won't sin against God. So we need to be growing in our knowledge of biblical truth. What is your plan to grow in this knowledge? What is your plan? Well, I don't have a plan. Then you have a plan to fail. <laughs> In order to know yourself, you have to know God. So how are you growing in your knowledge of God? If you want your decision-making and behavior to change, then you must know what God demands of you. You must know the teaching of Christ. But you also need to know what God has given to you. What provisions do you have in the gospel? What provisions are there? What does the Spirit intend to do with you? I don't ever think about that. What does the Spirit want to do with you? Think about that. Meditate on that. What patterns of grace can you avail yourself to? You see, God, God wants His church to be a very productive field, yielding a harvest of righteousness. That's what He wants. Half the church today just wants to dump gasoline on it and burn it. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to harvest 
righteousness. He wants the church to be a beautiful building, glistening in the world and illuminating righteousness and justice and peace. Caring for the least of these. He intends for each of us to build in various ways, but it will require us to know his teaching and reflect his teaching, which is where we land next. Finally, Jesus wants the church to reflect his living. You know, it wasn't all that bad when we had the WWJD bracelets. It was bad because it proved us hypocrites, frankly. But what would Jesus do? And don't forget, flipping tables and striking people with a whip is part of the program. What would Jesus do? We need to reflect his living. Jealousy and strife had infected the Corinthian church, and this bad fruit had indicated to Paul that they were still infants. But even worse, their own self-perception was that they were the wise ones. And this sort of hypocrisy is nothing new. When the Word of God stops being the mirror that we peer into in order to see ourselves for who we really are, then other men will invariably become this mirror. You see how easy that is? Instead of looking to the Scriptures, I'm going to look to someone else. Oh, well, they live this way. I should probably do that. Or they're that way. I should. And they become the standard. <laughs> if it isn't Jesus, it's a bad standard. From there... When this stuff happens, a competitive spirit will spring forth and you will prove your infancy to the world and people will see it. You can't help but notice a field that's been scorched. And you can't help but notice when a building has become dilapidated. Just drive through North Philly. You see old buildings dilapidated, run down, destroyed. You can't hide your fruit from anyone. You can't hide your fruit from anyone. In your homes, in the church, at your job, you cannot hide your fruit. Good or bad can't be hidden. Good fruit does not go unnoticed any more than bad fruit. So be mindful. Are you reflecting Christ in your living? Is your garden heart full of weeds, making it difficult for others to be around you? Your living must be consistent with your confession. Now, what we are saying here is you must have the superior building materials. <clears throat> These materials are the work of the Spirit, the Word, the sacraments, the Scriptures, the preaching of the Gospel, prayer, all of these tools. And any church that gets fancy with any of it or ignores any of it is, is not a church that's a barracks for war. It's a nursery for whiny infants. That's what Paul's saying. Don't be the nursery. Be the barracks. Do battle in the, in the world. And please know that this is not really an individualistic passage either. <laughs> One writer says it well. He says, the church is not a place for men to build monuments to themselves. This is a communal vision that totally discourages selfish individualism and self-absorbed factions. The building must have some sort of cooperation and coordination. Without it, the earthquake will collapse the thing. So what are we building here? What are we building here? Are we pursuing maturity in a way that is not on our own terms? Um, one writer says, One either builds the church through the preaching of the cross and through the instruction and sound doctrine, or else one attempts to build the church through the wisdom of men and will inevitably create factions and division. 
Furthermore, the content of the gospel then is the foundation upon which the church is built. And this message reveals to us the wisdom of God and its application to the various aspects of the Christian life. Friends, God's desire is for his church to be a spirit-filled community, a cross-shaped community whose thinking and living and decision-making and care for one another and fellowship and, and ministry to the world and ministry to one another proves an utter faithfulness to King Jesus. No one's going to say that guy is way too faithful to Christ. He's just way too faithful. They might look at you and say, he doesn't seem to be faithful at all. And our aim here at Cross and Crown is to ensure that each member is on a path of growth and maturation. Just speaking pastorally here, that each one is matured and exhibiting lasting, spirit-filled, gospel-saturated transformation. That everyone is equipped to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. And if we cannot govern ourselves, how can we govern the world, which is our calling? So let us leave the nursery where screaming and bickering and yelling runs amok and instead grow up into Christ as thankful graduates prepared to enter the workforce. The world needs transformation, but it needs transformed people in order to achieve it. Let's pray. We thank you, merciful God and Father, that you have brought us to know you and your Son by your Spirit and Word and that you have caused your word to be proclaimed to us. Grant us, who have received Christ Jesus as Lord, that we may live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as your word teaches, and help us to be overflowing with thanksgiving and thankfulness. Father, we implore you to keep us from hypocrisy and unfaithfulness. May you frustrate the work of evil, and may you give us strength as we labor for righteousness. As we approach your table, we ask your blessing. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.